0: Hey gang, welcome back. This week's episode sponsored by our generous patrons over on Patreon.com. Patrons are Rasmus, Clay, Jason, Jordan, Ryan, Malachi, William, Lyle, and George. Thank you so much for your support. And if you're wondering where you can join them, head on over to Patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. You can find a link to that in the show notes page or on the episode page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you can't find the show notes, go ahead and email me at redhillsrancher@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Something else you can find in the show notes are all the links and resources that we talk about in this episode. At the bottom of the show notes page, you can also find something I usually label click here for all my links. If you click that, it will take you to a place with links to all the other places you can get this podcast. It also has links to all my other social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, and my Amazon wish list. There's also a link on my Linktree page to take you right to Patreon. You can also reach me on Signal, Telegram, and WhatsApp. The next time you're on Facebook, stop by our private Facebook group just for podcast fans. It's called Ranching Reboot Paddock. It should show up in any search. For this episode, I thought as a good follow-up to the NCBA and RCAF episodes, I'd have somebody on that isn't a stranger to the show. Back for his fourth trip in the hot seat, Mike Calicrate. Where are you at today, Mike?
1: Colorado Springs at our meat
0: plant. i never know where you're going to be when we talk. (laughs) It's usually either
1: St. Francis, Kansas at the ranch or I'm here in Colorado Springs. Good deal. Good deal. How things been going? We need a rain. We we had a little rain out at St. Francis and we had a huge snow in Colorado Springs. It was beautiful uh, over the, over this last weekend but in st francis and western really old western kansas southwest nebraska we are in a terribly dry area and and really hurting uh we one of the one of our bigger cow herds in the in the area uh called the other day and had to make some decisions you know they had 500 cows and no grass it just wasn't green enough it wasn't gonna it was not gonna be able to handle any cows and uh And then of course you throw in there, those high feed costs, you know, I'm happy the farmer's getting a better price for grain, but, but boy, it's a, it's a, we're in a real squeeze if we can't raise the, the feed in our, in our area, uh, and, and be able to afford to feed these cattle.
0: Yeah. uh, Well, I think we're going to have to unpack that can a little bit later, but the high feed cost, lack of rain, I feel it too um until this morning we were over 230 days since we've had an inch of rain and we've had probably an inch and three quarters since last night it's all come real nice and slow it's just this nice slow beautiful rain seems like a lot and uh it is but it's not anywhere close to what we need to make it
1: right um no yeah you're your when you get that dry, a lot of that rain never goes in, into the soil. It, it just gets sucked up by all the biomass and dry air, and it's just yeah. We're we need a lot more rain. Yeah, for sure. So what have you been up to lately? But 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 Brian, while we're on that subject of weather, it, it is nice to know that that's the only risk that we have to face as as cattle producers.
0: Yeah, to to some extent that. That's one of the biggest ones. That's the only risk, right?
1: <laughs> so, you know, the guys that are out there doing all the work and taking the most risk now get a drought. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's not easy. It's not easy to keep the things running.
0: Yeah, for sure. So what else have you been up to
1: last oh, six or so months since the last time we talked? You know, what I've, I've been working on, a, you know, Ranch Foods Direct is about sort of an alternative pathway to the marketplace. For rent for me for for Calicrate Cattle Company you know I in '98 when I got blackballed by the Packers I I'd already been real heavily involved in in litigation and in legislation and uh, trying to just make cattle markets more fair and and in, raise income at the farm and ranch gate every every way we could uh, but the third really the third sort of solution for, for me was was to build that pathway to the consumer, you know around the broken system that we talk about. That, the concentrated and consolidated marketplace, the big packers uh, standing in the way of us getting to the consumer and then their partners, the big retailers and the big food service companies, they' going through them just wasn't going to leave me as a producer enough dollars to, to you know to, to stay alive. So I built a, a ranch foods direct model, but w- what we're doing is really taking that to the next level here in Colorado Springs. We, we just signed a contract uh, on a land purchase. To put together really, it's, it's kind of a local regional food village and it'll have the, the butcher shop, which will be us. Carcasses hanging fully on, on display in front of customers, a fresh meat counter. It'll take you back to 1969. <clears throat> when I graduated from high school, I worked in a meat shop in Col- in Evergreen, Colorado. And all of our meat came in in carcasses from the Denver Meat Packers. We had Pepper Lit back, we had Pueblo Alpha Beta Sterling Pack in Sterling, Colorado. But all the the trade was was in carcasses, not boxed beef. <clears throat> so what I wanted, what we want to do, is build a model that shows that time. When it worked, when it worked for producers, when it worked for the meat market guys, and when it worked as what well, just as well for the for the consumer, and so so what we want to do is not only just have that meat market because we have that now. We have two locations in Colorado Springs where we have that now. We cut from the carcass, but I want to put it in a format of a sort of a village to where the baker, <clears throat> the uh, brewer, you know maybe the distiller. The coffee roaster, uh, the cheese maker, uh, the, of course the butcher, uh, maybe the best steak that, that you can get in the region. You know the taco trailer. All of us that care about a local economy uh, being healthy, and all of us who care about eating good food and supporting people who grow food, and and the independent businesses that that deliver that to us have a safe place to, to do business. Uh, and, and so I'm suggesting that we go out and we buy land and that we build each one of those vendors that I mentioned earlier, their own space that they can own right now, if you are a young guy and and you want to bake bread and open up a, a bakery, typically you go to some developer or you go to some, uh, commercial real estate person, and you say, "Where can I rent a place to open a bakery?" And so you'll go in, and of course, you don't have any money. Uh, you're you know running on a shoestring. You're just hoping, hoping you can you can make it, and people will support you. Right. But what happens is, you jump in there into a five or a ten year lease with a with a with a landlord, and you know you're subject to rent increases. And, and, and you're subject to CAM increases and common area maintenance increases, you're, you're subject to a lot of things that you have no more control over. And, and what if, what if there was a model that you could build uh, your business inside a space that you could actually own and earn equity in and pay a mortgage instead of rent? If USDA, if President Biden with his Build Back Better is really interested in giving independent business and farmers and ranchers access to consumers through a local regional food system. I'm saying, let's begin with the end in mind. Let's build it. Let's build that little, that that community of businesses that are food related and let them own their space. And, and then when they're ready to retire, I mean, talk about planning and investing for the long term when you as a as a bakery owner and you, you're now 75 years old and getting tired, maybe you're 65 years old and getting tired, but you want to turn it over to the next generation. Maybe it's you know your best employees. Maybe it's your children. But you can do that now because you owned it. You You paid a mortgage instead of rent. And now you have equity in the real estate that your business is located in. And so, and so now you can, you can say, hey, look, uh, you guys want to buy the business. I'm happy to sell it to you. You can make monthly payments uh, and you, you now assume a mortgage and, and that person then can go ahead and retire. <clears throat> but also advise that, you know, the new owners of that business, uh, you know, maybe hang out and work every now and then in your, in your retirement. I mean, it just becomes this community that sticks together and helps each other. So it, it creates opportunity immediately for farmers and ranchers to get access to the consumer via this this community of food producers. Uh, but it but it also it also helps that next generation, you know, be able to really stay on the on the ranch and stay in the bakery and stay in the meat shop and or stay in whatever business that that may be. And and so. You know we're really looking at this being the alternative model to the chain to the to the franchise to those wall street based businesses that sell things from somewhere else in all in all the communities around the world and then. Take the money away every day, and, and so I think we, we overlook the people between the ranch and the farm and the consumer those people who are working hard. I mean they haven't had a raise since 1970 in in real dollars. Uh and and you know the model that we've got right now that COVID exposed is as fragile and and totally breakable uh with big meat plants and fast moving chains and inexperienced workers standing shoulder to shoulder. That just doesn't work. And and it won't work going forward and and why we'd want to build more of those kind of facilities beyond me. Let's invest our money in that local regional food system, as I've described, and 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 uh, and really build something that's resilient and and sustainable.
0: Okay, And there's there was a lot there. You know, <clears throat> I've heard that I've heard rumors at the Packers that the Big Four are trying to build some new plants, but again, we still haven't seen any news release. Nobody's talking about it, and nobody's you know been posting on social media saying oh, hey, there's a new Cargill plant going in down the street from me. I don't, it doesn't seem like they're trying to add capacity to leave, you know, to work with any shortages. And I start to get really concerned about, you know, we we talk about small-scale meat plants and, you know, mid-scale and and community-sized meat plants. But on it, I'm starting to wonder how many of those do we have to have to make a difference or will they all make a difference? No, they won't
1: make a difference at all, Brian. Uh, the first thing we have to do is break up the abusive market power, the concentrated power of the of the current meatpacking and, and retail food service businesses that are out there that now control the market. Uh, building new infrastructure that sells to the existing infrastructure at any level, whether it's food service or retail, absolutely will not work. These folks are used to making 30 percent return on their equity. Uh, Cisco last uh, at the end of the year was for the five, six year average was over 43 percent return on equity. They are not going to willingly give that up. And of course, their whole business has been, you know, making money for their shareholders and executives and, and all of that. And, and they feel that's their responsibility. And, and honestly, it is. And that's part of the problem. It is their responsibility to lie, cheat and steal, to make all the damn money they can possibly make. And, and, and uh, you don't just tell them to be nice and, and hopefully get let you have a seat at the table. Uh, you have got to kick their ass. You've got to break them up. You have, you, there should not be a conglomerate anywhere on the planet that controls any part of any vital vital industry in the United States. There conglomerates should should we shouldn't allow conglomerates to even exist. Look what General or General Electric did. They they finally figured it out. They got big enough that they knew themselves that they had become inefficient and that they were not doing a great job in all these various industries that they had decided to put money in and run so they broke themselves up johnson and johnson is breaking themselves up i mean has didn't antitrust wait a little long a little too long when the companies themselves say hey you guys should have you know should have thrown the flag on us you know 30 years ago where have you been you could have saved us some money You know, we just thought we actually believed our own lie that bigger is better, and we were wrong.
0: There's another, there's another monopolized, um, commodity that's in that's having shortages. And by this time, by the time this one comes out in about a week, I bet we'll still be hearing about it baby food shortages.
1: Yeah.
0: Three companies make like 98% of the baby food sold in the United States. Three companies, 98%. nobody sees a problem with that
1: And abbott the conglomerate abbott controls five percent it's five percent of their of their business and they control like 90 something percent of the market and the government is complicit in this whole thing the government is part of the problem because they fueled it they've supported concentration and consolidation and got us where we are today in this completely broken system but my goodness uh Abbott, you know, they got they got the deal with the government. Basically, the government gave them a, a monopoly through through the WIC program, uh, Women and Infants uh, Nutrition Program, and and so here, you know, they they get five it's five percent of their company, but it's ninety some percent of the entire supply of, of of formula in the country, and is that something that the CEO really gives any, Does he really care about it? It's five percent of the company you know, oh, it, it might be a little bit of an irritant right now when mothers are screaming at him. Uh, but honestly, the mothers can't even find him. Does the factory
0: manager care?
1: No. And and, and so I'm just saying, we made some really big mistakes. And, and, and like I said, a conglomerate, that's the best example. A conglomerate should never own control the supply of baby formula. And of course, you know, this is really serious when you when you can't feed your babies, when you when you can't feed the infants and take care of them. It's also a real problem that mothers don't have time to nurse. They they got to get back to work. You know, they can't pay the mortgage if they don't. I mean, why are we putting so much pressure on all these young mothers when if the economy worked and there was a fair distribution of income throughout the you know we'd be moms could stay with at home with their kids. You know, because the 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 other breadwinner or the main breadwinner of the family could could earn enough at his job uh to pay the mortgage. But no, he worked he works at Tyson in Garden City and they live seven families to a trailer house. And now we and we hell we can't even get milk. And she works at Dollar General. Exactly. They don't have enough money to even live. And 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 so had the meat. Shelves been empty longer, it would have probably helped people become more aware of the threat and the and the insecurity of having big corporations in charge of your food supply. You know, when the Tyson fire happened in Garden City, uh, they, you know, there was some there was some big price movements, and they call it the black swan. And 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 then we have another black swan with COVID and another black swan with with somebody uh uh, tapping into JBS's computer system, all these black swans and pretty quick, it just, it just becomes the standard ordinary deal. It's always a wreck. It, it, there's, they're always trying to figure out how to pay less for cattle and charge consumers more for meat. And I'm just saying, if we don't get rid of these congl- this conglomerate ownership of these critical industries, we can't get anywhere. And so the, the, the Justice Department has got to get with USDA and, and has got to get with the Federal Trade Commission And they got to put a plan together to break these plants up and i'm suggesting that there should not be any multi-plant ownership at all uh these these big guys like tyson uh they each plant that they own is is about five or six percent of the total slaughter in the u.s each plant and i'm saying let them own one plant period if there is an efficiency economy of scale benefit it'll be realized at that level but i would argue that it's not efficient most certainly got an economy of scale argument but it's just basic raw market power that keeps competitors out and as long as we allow these guys to to slaughter this many animals uh in 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 across our country and multi-species in in addition there's no reason for these for these plants to be killing or or controlling all three meat categories and and including even the fourth the fake meat so you take a cargill they're in all the categories they're from they're in poultry pork beef and fake meat uh jbs same way uh tyson cargill jbs all of them are the same way and i'm 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 just saying if we want a resilient food system one that works one that keeps people on the land with a fair share of the consumer dollar these guys got to go and their buddies at retail, Kroger, Walmart, Amazon, uh, which whole owns Whole Foods, those guys got to go to. You, you've you got to create the pathway to the consumer. And that's where I go back to the little the village sort of concept that I just mentioned. I think consumers are clamoring for it. There's a little town north of Colorado Springs by the name of Monument that that uh a Starbucks coffee shop came into town and put it. Put a shop in well there's there's a longtime coffee shop named serrano's that's been there for a long time and it was really cool the way the community when starbucks came in they just didn't go there now that's hard i mean mean, it's like that's really amazing that this community said no to starbucks and continued to support their local coffee shop and so you go up there and serrano's will be just packed full and there'll be two people in starbucks and of course, you know Starbucks has probably got a location across the interstate, and it's not far to get to another Starbucks. But, but I'm just saying, we've had enough of these darn big corporate control chains and and uh, and franchises that that extract wealth not only from our communities and main streets, but from our farms and ranches and and the workers who who make sure that food gets to our plates. So,
0: I. D- I know we've talked we talk about this often about using the packers and stockyards act to break up the packers and that's like that's an antitrust i guess that that's a weapon of antitrust in the government's tool bag right
1: yeah it's specifically designed to protect the producer and and it was really just never enforced uh after you know much after the breakup of the packers 120 or so years ago we it was actually 100 years ago that we broke up the packers uh, 1921 packers and stockyards act and and they had a consent decree that basically made they, it broke up the conglomerate control so they had to give up retail railroad stockyards i mean if you were going to be a packer you had to be a packer you couldn't be feeding the cattle and 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 so that that really worked, but but then it really never got enforced. And 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 we came into that era when you know Ronald Reagan was president, and even before that somewhat. And we just decided that corporations were nice, and we should we should let them uh, get as big as they want to get because we really believe big is better, and it's time to globalize and have big companies that can sell and buy on a global basis. And and we just wiped out the Packers and Stockyards Act with with lack of enforcement, but there was a there was a really big hit to the Packers and Stockyards Act with the with the uh, Tyson I B P case that I was a plaintiff in. Uh, you know I blame Judge Lyle E. Strong. Uh He was one of those Reagan appointees that didn't believe in antitrust law enforcement, didn't believe in you know holding corporations accountable, and. And he, we won that lawsuit against Tyson Ibp. Uh, when the jury awarded its one point two eight billion dollars, and it was in two thousand four that that trial occurred. And and the jury apologized to us. We're sorry. Uh, you you deserve a lot more, but we didn't have a mathematical formula available to us that would that would allow it. And and but honestly, we didn't care about the money we wanted the injunctive relief we wanted the packers to compete again instead of cooperate and and continue their anti-competitive practices and and so lyle strom we knew he was in tyson's pocket when he wrote the jury instructions uh because the jury instructions were really written as if as if the clayton or sherman act was being applied to this case what what's that the sherman and clayton acts are antitrust laws that, that happened before the Packers and Stockyards Act that, that really addressed that rubber barren monopoly economy that we had around 1900. Uh, you know, Epstein Sinclair wrote the book, The Jungle in 1906, and, and that, that really shone the light on the big meat Packers and all their bad behavior. Uh, but but we, at that time, we were, we were passing laws to control monopoly. Uh, and and so that's what the Sherman and and, and the Clayton Act were about, and and it basically it, it prevented collusion, but it was all about not it, the consumer benefit. How how do we protect the consumer? And so here the meat monopoly comes along, and then it becomes a question. Then when Congress was considering what to do, it was about how do we protect the producer, and so it's specifically to protect the producer, which was great and and it, and it helped us for for some time uh but the with judge strom in the alabama uh, case against tyson I B P, he wrote jury instructions that that were very much in line with with the ones you would see for for the sherman and clayton act and 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 he was he was he believed that you know that's where this harm to competition problem came from you know so if you're if you're uh uh A.T. Terry in, in uh, on the East Coast, uh, you know, contract growing for Tyson, and you find out that Tyson is cheating you on the chicken weights. Uh, you've got to prove that because Ch- Tyson cheated you on your chicken weights, you've got to prove that that harmed chicken growers all across the United States. Well, no, it didn't. It it, it harmed A.T. Terry. A.T. Terry proved that Tyson cheated him on his chicken weights, but he couldn't get relief under the Packers and Stockyards Act because the judges had decided that he had to prove harm to competition. Well that might be true for the Sherman and Clayton acts, but it is absolutely not true for the Packers and Stockyards Act. In fact, the Packers and Stockyards plain language says that no meat pack, no meat packer can do anything that even so much has the effect of reducing competition. And so how do we end up with 80 and 85% captive supplies with the meat packers staying out of the market for six weeks in the spring of 1994, not buying any cattle, dropping the market $17 a hundredweight? How does that happen if you've got a Packers and Stock Carers Act that says anything they do that even has the effect of reducing competition, they can't do. And the other thing that Judge Strom said is, or what Judge Strom believed was that if these Packers have a business reason, rule of reason, in other words, if they have a business reason and if they have to do something to meet the competition, like feed cattle, or better yet, the formula that IBP developed where they had captive supply without having to own the cattle, if they had to do that to compete with Cargill and Conagra, now it's now Conagra's JBS. Then they that was okay, they, you know that that wasn't all bad, and we're not we're not going to tie their hands while their while their competitors run over them, and and so rather than do the right thing and just say look no packer can have captive supplies, no packer can can have ownership of the livestock uh, to the to the extent that it impacts competition in the market, and no we didn't do that we we just we gave them a green light, and so in that lawsuit and against tyson and ibp that was decided in 2004 the judge gave the green light to the big packers to you know pillage and plunder all they want i mean without any worry about law enforcement and, and you remember back when tyson was buying ibp right after john tyson it was in 2002 he was at the national cattleman's beef association meeting there to give a talk and and, and basically in, announced that he was buying IBP, and that the cattlemen shouldn't worry because it, it was going to be just fine. We weren't going to do the cattle producers what we did to chicken growers. And 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 I talked to him when he was at that before he went to the uh, microphone that day. And and I said, you know, John, uh, I've got a lawsuit against you. If if you buy IBP, you're you're going to be buying a lawsuit. And he said, well, what lawsuit's that? And I said, well, it's the Packers, it's 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 anti-competitive practices. IBP's been using captive supplies to depress the cash market. And it's anti-competitive and it's illegal uh under the law. And Tyson says, Well, I know all about the Packers and Stockyards Act. And I said, Yeah, I'm sure you do. I said, it, had it been properly applied, you wouldn't be where you are in the chicken business. You certainly wouldn't be where you are today buying the biggest meat packer, IBP. And and so he we fussed back and forth a little bit and and then he said well you know mike you're, you're suing the wrong people you should be suing walmart they dictate price to us and we have no choice but to pay you less and i said exactly i totally agree and had you not had such a, a large amount of market power you couldn't pay us less had ibp not had their captive supplies had tyson uh, in in the poultry business not been able to lower their their cost of production by not paying growers a fair price uh, and and workers a fair wage, they wouldn't be able to produce less and less for the Walmart contract every year. And and so John Tyson was right, but the problem is judges like Lyle Strom and other DREG judges, mostly of the Reagan era that, that were appointed on the federal bench those guys really gave corporations new power to do even worse things than than we've seen even from the 1900 timeframe. Today, our markets are more concentrated by almost double what they were then. Food safety is worse now than it was then, except on a much larger scale with more efficient distribution to the consumer. And you think about the recalls that we have and the size of those recalls and how widespread they are. So that same efficient distribution system works great for pathogens as well. Uh, We're treating workers as bad as we did back in the jungle era, except we're treating a lot more of them worse and we're treating them worse also in other countries, even Canada, Mexico. In order to compete with JDS and these big meat packers that run chains so fast, everybody else else has to do the same thing. And so I'm just saying, I think it's time to, to put a stop to it. And let's honestly, truly rebuild local regional food systems that, that actually work, uh, like 1969, when I was in that meat market in Evergreen, Colorado, it was it was inside the thrifty grocery store.
0: What's your timeline for your food village? When are you hoping to have that running?
1: Well, we, were, we signed a contract to purchase the real estate. Uh, now we're doing our due, our due diligence, but it looks like we should have all of that pretty well figured out by November 1st. Okay. And then it's a matter of, you know, getting construction documents approved and, and all of that. So I think we're, we're looking at 2024 to get that done. But Brian, this is, this is where the farmer's market's gonna be held. Th- this is where the music is gonna be played. This is where we can de-stress <laughs> instead of stress. This is where you're going to go and and talk to everybody. This is where you're going to go and the kids are going to be able to have a safe place to play while you have a beer and a burger. And, and when it's time to go home, those kids are going to be saying, are you ready to go?
0: <laughs>
1: and they're going to go to sleep when they get home. i this, this is going to be the place where where really community happens and an independent business thrives and farmers and ranchers get a fair share of the consumer dollar and you know what consumers aren't going to pay a penny more than what they're paying now because there is plenty of money there's never been more money in the food system in the food business to, at the consumer level and never never so little going back to the people who actually grow stuff and do the work
0: yep and the more inflation hits like the more inflation sets in and, and like puts its sticky little fingers on the economy, the more that's going to affect food price. The, I guess the the more it'll affect the price of food that has to tra- that has to go through a bunch of different hands and a bunch of different middlemen before it gets to you.
1: You know we slaughter our cattle right on the ranch where they're raised. So we got pigs and cattle out there that we that we kill right on site. And just think about that efficiency of not having to haul the animal. You know, I ran into a trucker in St. Francis last week that was loading cattle in, right in our area to go to Schuyler, Nebraska with $5 diesel fuel. Are you kidding me? Why would you take them four or 500 miles to slaughter when, you know, the, the Garden City plant's 170 miles away, You know. We've got, the, we've got the brush plant or, uh, that, or Fort Morgan plant that's 120 miles away, you know, Greeley that's 180. I mean, what is going on here? And, and so you think about that inefficiency, but I want to say, weren't those, those cattle were very likely being hauled from Northwest Kansas to Schuyler, Nebraska, because they needed the cattle back there to break the market or so that they didn't have to go into the market and, and push the cash price up. And so they're, they're, they're regionally, they're working with cattle supplies that they have control of to keep the prices down at all their plants. And, and this is just an example of one of the anti-competitive practices.
0: Do you, do you think that they would buy, do you think that they would have some other contractor on a formula in one yard, maybe have a little oversupply, and then ship those at a loss to another region just to mean, just to depress a price?
1: Of course they do. In fact, we knew that from, from when ConAgra was selling cattle to IBP years ago. You know, Conagra had a few extra cattle, which they had those three hundred thousand head in those three feedlots up in near Greeley and in Yuma, Colorado. And you know, you get a little long on some cattle, you can you can sell them to IVP. It helps break the market. Actually, that was excuse me, that wasn't that wasn't uh, Conagra. That was uh, Cargill that that sold. Uh, I'll have to look that up. It was it was either Cargill or Conagra. That anyway, and Cargill had the same situation. They had a bunch of feedlots too. But but they actually literally sold cattle at IBP. I, I mean, a big number of cattle, and we saw the market drop literally drop, you know, a lot of dollars with, within a within that week uh, that those packers were able to stay out of the market. So again, you know, you can't you can't match a an independent cattle feeder against a multinational conglomerate and and hope to have any market power. That it, it, it's just not going to happen. And, and and so you go you you got to go back to your, your first question, you know, you know, how do we, you know, what do we do? I mean, do we need more big plants? No, we don't. We need to, we need to scatter those investments out and, and we need to feed the people in a, in a region, not, not the people around the world. And we need to let the world do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I, and I can
0: start to see the problems with big corporate structure say a big company that's run for the benefit of the shareholders. Okay. The people that manage that company, they have a responsibility to turn a profit for the shareholders to show return for the shareholders. And that goes for everybody from everybody in management, all the salaried management type people. So you take, you know, a large company. We won't name any one of them because we don't want to get sued, but you know, we could, you could pick a name because there's so many of them having supply chain problems. You have a plant that has to shut down for some reason. Well, the manager of that plant, is he under any special pressure to get it running? Probably not. Well, do the best you can. He's going to do the best he can. But say, if it was a manufacturer of baby food formula, and it was a family that owned that, that worked there every day, they would wake up every day and go to work owning that plant and know that their mission in life was to provide safe, clean, nutritious baby formula to whatever babies needed. Right. Right. But when you remove that ownership layer and you, you distance them so far from the means of production or the place or the, the the mechanism of, of production, you lose a lot of accountability.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, you, you go back to COVID. What did Ranch Foods Direct do when, when COVID hit, we never had an empty shelf, we just worked harder. I mean, it's such a small company. It's such, it's the, you know, it just serves the communities that it's in St. Francis, Kansas and in Colorado Springs, but we, we worked really hard. I mean, our our guys just stepped up, and I mean, it, it, you know, we just did all, we just worked as fast and hard as we could, and and we kept shelves full while the other guys' shelves were bare, completely bare and empty. Uh, and and so we've already proved that, and, and it's kind of like uh, the Keg restaurant in Manitou. It, it's a family-owned restaurant. We've supplied them ever since we've been in Colorado Springs and, and for 20-some years. and. And they came out of COVID probably with the best year they have had financially. At the same time as a lot of other restaurants went bankrupt and and, and just closed down and chains closed up and, you know, their workers didn't want to come to work. They didn't own the place, but the keg right away decided to go curbside and they sold a lot of food curbside with a lot less labor expense uh in in their business and and so they they've come out of it in good shape uh and and they're ready to go on now what about those restaurants in great bend kansas or salina kansas that cisco failed to deliver now what are you going to do they don't have a ranch foods direct supply in them like the keg the keg never ran out of meat we never ran out of meat but those little restaurants in in salina and great bend and and learn it and wherever they may be and they they've been buying off the cisco truck they just didn't get deliveries and so they didn't even if they wanted to they couldn't have, they couldn't have continued with curbside or contact-free delivery they couldn't have done it and and what was really weird is when cisco des- decided they weren't going to deliver the small restaurants and in fact we're going to rather take care of their national accounts which are chains and franchises then US food decided they weren't gonna call on uh, Cisco's accounts, that they weren't gonna sell Cisco's accounts. Well, the bottom line is they, you know, they had, you know, looked at merging with Cisco. Cisco was gonna buy US foods or merge with US foods uh, earlier. And they got to know each other really well. Well, they didn't, now they didn't have to buy, they didn't have to merge. They had all the benefits of just knowing each other really well and having the same objective of maximizing profits. And so they decided, well, like the big backers, why don't we just cooperate rather than compete? And so if Cisco wasn't gonna deliver the account, then the US Food Service wasn't gonna deliver the account. And so now you got small plants, small restaurants, food service, or food related businesses that can't get supply. And, and so you just think how vulnerable they are. And so now they not only have the problem with supply, which the keg didn't have, and our customers at Ranch Foods didn't have, but now they got their landlord trying to raise the rent, or the or the landlords trying to demand, you know, that that they pay, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, and, and now, as you said about the inflation thing, all of diesel fuel at five bucks is is creeping into everything. Everything's going to go up because diesel's at five bucks. But the biggest problem with inflation is, is not true inflation, it's price gouging. And you mentioned their loyalty and their, and their legal responsibilities to maximize shareholder returns. And so if you're an oil company and you want to maximize shareholder returns, and you're in a position of monopoly power, or at least shared monopoly power with three other oil companies, then by God, you're going to jack the price of gas and oil. It's going up. And your shareholders are going to have a windfall, and and people everywhere are going to be hurt. And this just gets back to why in the world did antitrust sleep so long? There they are showing signs of waking up, just signs. There hasn't been any real progress yet, and and I mean really, Justice Department, where where's the where's the report on the Tyson fire? You know where where's the report on the on the price fixing during COVID? You know, JBS paid 52 and a half million in, in, in settlements uh, for, for fixing the price at the same time as a reported billion dollar profit. Really, is, is 52 million gonna make a difference? It certainly isn't gonna make any difference to the people they cheated. Uh, did I sent you that rap sheet on JBS earlier today. I don't know if you had time to check your email, but JBS has got quite the impressive rap sheet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so honestly, it, you know, part of the deal with corporate charters is you have to, you can't be a a felon, you can't be a you know a serial lawbreaker. You you you've got to you've got to behave well. So I'm I'm just wondering why are we allowing JBS to have a, a charter dot do business, and and the same for Tyson, Smithfield, Cargill, and all these others.
0: The last time we talked, you brought up the uh, that there is a USDA rule that prevented. Felons from owning packing plants in the United States, and and I think you said that you'd you'd called out JBS already once to the USDA, and the answer was, well, they're not felons in the U.S. They're just felons in Brazil, so that's okay.
1: (laughs) Um, Didn't did that change? No, that didn't change. In fact, I I love Greg Gunthorpe wrote him a letter too, and 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 said look you know these guys are multiple i mean serious felons i mean they bribed the last three presidents of brazil almost two thousand government officials and inspectors to get rotten meat in the united states at what point do you pull their grant of inspection i mean if i did that i i mean i'd never i mean i'd never be in the back in the meat business And, and 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 so I, I, you know the government is, is favoring the big plants over the little plants and there's so many common sense things they could do to help small plants and and reduce the onerous you know inspection process that they deal with and make it actually a lot better and a lot safer and, and easier to to, to to you know hold people accountable but but usda is not interested in that usda is only interested in the benefit of big corporations and, and, you know, the big, the big slaughterhouses. And of course, you know, we've got the revolving door and, uh, from big business into into uh, the, the agencies and back again. And Almanza, the guy that let the rotten meat in from JBS when he was, you know, food safety inspection guy, uh, uh, yeah, he, administrator for food safety inspection service. You know, he just, when Sonny Perdue made him stop it, stop importing the rotten meat, He quit and went to work for JBS, who was shipping us the rotten meat. That's the kind of thing we got to stop. Almanza should be in prison for what he did. And yet he he got a $5 million upfront payment, and he's no doubt getting a a livable wage (laughs) out of the Batista brothers.
0: Have, Have we got to the point where these meat packers are now in that, I guess, The unofficial legal governmental protected status of too big to fail, and they're just kind of looking the other way and letting them do whatever they want to do, because that that really seems like that's what's happening. Like too big to fail, and I can also define too big to fail as too many congressmen are invested in those companies to let them go to let anything happen to them.
1: Yeah, and, and invested in a different couple of different ways, but you know the Tyson fire although it wasn't you know really legitimate i mean they actually killed more cattle the following week than they than they'd done before the fire uh i mean so they were able to work saturdays and, <clears throat> and speed things up and, and were able to fill in but they used it as a way to break the market and and to maximize their profits uh and and, and so yeah they they the whole that just this whole price gouging thing if, if we if we don't break up this abusive power, uh, we're never going to see an end to what we would call inflation, which is actually price gouging.
0: Yeah. Yep. So over the last couple of weeks, I've had, I spoke with several people. Um, Brett Kinsey, that episode just came out just, well, today as we're recording it. So, um, and then a couple of weeks ago, I had Don Shifflebeam from NCBA on. Did you, did you get a chance to catch that episode?
1: I watched every minute of it brian i was i was oh i couldn't believe don's answer don's answer to us being successful is we have to innovate really where's the innovation we, we don't need we don't need a fair share of the consumer dollar we don't need a living wage and and i get very tired of of all these guys that are out there trying to tell you how to farm and how to ranch and you know you need smaller cows you need You know, you need more cows, you need, you know, rotational grazing. If you go regenerative, you can save money. What's this idea that we've got to be the low cost producer and and the last man standing uh, with all the technology and all of the practices and management and stuff that's going on while our kids leave and never want to come back? Why the hell don't we go after what's really wrong? And that is our share of the consumer dollar has dropped as a result of big meat packers cooperating rather than competing, rigging the markets and paying us too damn little. When are we going to go after that darn problem? And, and we're, I, we're wasting, we're wasting valuable
0: time. here. I, I'm with you. I mean, you know, I'm with you. And the thing that stuck out to me is it was kind of, I think it was about in the first half hour. I said something, he said something, I said something. And then he really kind of pushed back on me about, knowing your customer, that you have to know your customer. And my thought was, yes, you do. And I'm pretty sure I know who my customer is. I feel like I have a good idea of who, of who his customer is. And I know, you know, your customer and let's just say that uh, you and I are kind of standing on one side of the road and he's standing on another with who our customer is. But that's important because yes, you have to know who your customer is and what your customer wants. And you have to make a product that makes sense for you, that makes economic sense for you to make for that customer.
1: Yeah. Well, Don Shufflebine's customer is big meat packer. And Don Scheffelbein serves the big McFactor's interest as president of NCBA. And I honestly feel sorry for the guy. I mean, I mean he's obviously a nice person. He's got a nice family, and he's done a good job of bringing him into the operation.
0: Hey, and then like he a tells you about his advantages.
1: You know, he's, he can innovate. Well, we can feed byproducts. Well, that's great. Uh, you can feed byproducts while Paul is feeding, you know, $8 corn. That, that's great. Uh, but Paul Engler's got a sweetheart deal probably that's better than you, Don Shufflebine. You no doubt have a sweetheart deal. Why don't you share that with us? Why don't you tell us what you're actually getting for your cattle? You know, how about some transparency in CBA? How about pulling the curtain back on this confidentiality provision that, was, that reversed the intent of mandatory price reporting? You know, Shufflebine is on the opposite side of all of the policy that I believe need, needs to happen. And, and, you know, he's been, he's probably been an NCPA member for a long time. Uh, and and he's probably, you know, drank the globalization Kool-Aid and bigger is better Kool-Aid, but but doggone it, there's no excuse. There's just no excuse for, for what's coming out of his mouth uh, in, in the way of supporting policy that hurts cattle producers. Why don't we have country of origin labeling? You know, why did we uh at the rulemaking table, like we did with mandatory price reporting and the confidentiality rule, which reversed the intent of that of that piece of legislation, same thing happened with country of origin labeling. We passed it, it was the right thing to do, and then during the rulemaking, they, they say, well, it won't apply to you know, ground or, or value added or cooked or whatever. Well, you know what? When I go to a McDonald's, which I won't do, but if I go to a McDonald's, I want to know where the meat comes from. Yes. Why shouldn't I be able to know as an eater the same as I am as a shopper at a grocery store? And so anyway, Don Shubblebine is is has taken on the position of the big meat packers, big retail, big food in general, and they're using him. He he's 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 window dressing, and he and he, you know he's got a hat, and he sets it down on the table like you're supposed to, and and you know I, I thought that was funny one of the Congress and said oh he knows how to put his hat on the table yeah it's crown you put your crown the hat with the crown down you know it's it's like bull riders you know you never threw your hat on the bed i mean there's some things you know that you, when you wear your cowboy hat and and so you know he looks good i mean the guy fills the role well for ncba but it's a complete and total betrayal of, of the cattle producer like the, the, the people paying the check off it's a complete betrayal and they sat there in NCBA and they watched that producer share the consumer dollar go to nothing 27% during covid when it used to be 70% when i first started feeding cattle in 1970 in the 70s i mean this guy is 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 totally betraying the industry that he makes his money off of and he's got a purebred business so he's got You know, he's got some Angus cattle. So isn't he just a little bit outside of the real market there as well? He's selling bulls, but hey, I think the guy ought to, you know, he ought to be selling feeder cattle to JBS and see how that works, or selling feeder cattle to Paul Engler and see how well that works. No, he he doesn't know that He he doesn't know all those things uh, that that are really impacting some of these members, although he should be hearing it from bull customers.
0: So, Something I've been thinking about since I talked to Don and you know I, I talked to Brett Kinsey from RCAF as well. I haven't reached out to anybody at U.S. Cattlemen's Association. Maybe I should just for due diligence. But here's the question. So of, of those three organizations, NCBA, RCAF, and USCA, those are pretty much the three cattle national cattlemen's organizations that that any that everybody's heard of, right? That's right. So Here's what I want to know. Where are their members geographically? And what's the average size of those operations? Like maybe have it on a map to where there's like a blue dot for an RCAF and the size of the dot is the size of the operation. Like I'd like to see that on a map, size of operation and, and where they're at and who they're a member of. And I, I kind of feel like that there's going to be a pattern. Right, like our calf is going to be more up in the Dakotas and Montana and Idaho. USCA is kind of going to be in the southwest. RCAF is going to be represented by the feed yards and the packers and the backyard cow people that are east of the Mississippi River. RCAF? No, RCAF would be kind of like uh, Northern Plains.
1: Yeah, that's right. Okay, so who, who are you just talking about?
0: RCAF, Northern Plains, uh, U.S. Cattlemen's kind of Southwest. And then NCBA is. Ah, you know, yeah. Okay, East okay, East I America. said RCAF.
1: Okay, yeah. Yeah, NCBA is going to be serving the biggest meatpackers. Uh, they're going to be serving the big contract feed yards. Uh, they're going to be serving the uh, the the power in the industry, the concentrated but, power.
0: So I heard it from Brett and I heard it from Don. They both said the membership tells us what they want to support. I get that. Totally get that.
1: Right. Let's be transparent about where your members are. Well, well, and also who they are uh, Yeah. and and how much power they have as a member. I used to be a member of national cattlemen's association. I was there that year in San Antonio in 96, when they merged the checkoff, which I opposed, Uh, but I, I went to those meetings. I, I, I went to the, ninth, well, I was at the 2001 NCBA meeting, so I hung with them for five years after the merger. But when I was in a marketing committee meeting, I'd be the only guy speaking out. And I'd be getting shouted down by an IBP employee. They were on the board now. And Bruce Bass would be sitting up in front of me in the aisle gazing with his gaze going back to all those big cattle feeders, Keeping their mouths shut. Bruce Bass was the head buyer for IDP, so I was a member, but I, I, it didn't help me to show up. the 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 biggest and the strongest ran the organization. That was the big meat packers. They ran the organization. It was just sickening to see the head buyers of of all these slaughterhouses, you know, at the bar drinking together and laughing, and you know, calling Calicrate an idiot from the back row, and 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 I mean. If we were being shouted down and the bottom line is Don Shufflebine's membership that runs the organization is the big meat packers and their partner, big feed yard people. So it's not the cow calf guy. So the, the cow calf people They may be members of NCBA. I'd love to see a real membership list because I'm saying they got a a whole lot fewer members than they claim. But Don Scheffelbein's membership that he talks about that runs the organization of the Big Meat Packers, it is not cow-calf people. For for, to get that representation, you do have to go to our calf. And and, and the United States Cattlemen's Association, once they got some checkoff money, they got awfully quiet on the the market concentration problem. And they got awfully quiet on, on the protest around the checkoff and the misuse of those dollars. And, and so I don't see the U.S. Cattlemen's Association being near strong enough for the cowman. See, I think the only guy that really matters in this in this business right now is the cow-calf producer. If we don't have the calves being produced on these ranches, these farmer feeders aren't going to have anything to put in their feedlots. The big feeders aren't going to have anything except for what they import out of Mexico and Canada. They honestly don't know when to quit being predators in the market. They don't know when to quit. It's all about my self-interest and my short-term profitability right now. And that and all of that is being given power through the checkoff financing the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And, and we keep picking them off. So you give a little checkoff money to the US Cattlemen's, and they become a little weaker. RCAF is the only organization that stands strong. Brett Kenzie is awesome. He, he does a terrific job as president of that organization but he's, he's a front. He's got a front row seat in this industry. You know, he raises cattle he feeds cattle and he has to sell them to a damn meat packer. And and if you live that every day, you are, you are fighting a war. You get up every day, having to look at the market to see how you're supposed to feel. And that is no way to live your life. You it's got, we've got to fix this thing. And I think the first step that we have to take is not the compromise bill. My God, hold the phone on all of this legislation that's being proposed now, right, in these in these A committees. Just stop it. Don't talk about it, Grassley and Tester and, and Deb De- and Fra- Frazier or Fisher from Nebraska. Just be quiet and stop it. Withdraw it all. And we gotta do one thing, just one thing. We've got to reverse the confidentiality provision with take it out of the price reporting mandatory price reporting get rid of the confidentiality provision how does a market work with secret trades that are going on i'm saying you get rid of that you get rid of that confidentiality rule and just let the shit fly it will be a firestorm when these cattle feeders find out what paul engler has been getting for cattle for the last 30 years compared to what they were paying or getting paid and they're all competing at the same sale barn for feeder cattle if you knew the the feedlots out there that were absolutely guaranteed a profit on every animal regardless of what the price does up or down wouldn't you be mad when your little feedlot went broke and you played the fool's game all those years you'd want to get even with somebody i'm just saying make every single transaction totally transparent
0: yeah yeah i'd get real upset especially if i was feeding you know basically the same cattle, the same thing for the same amount of days. And they were yielding and grading and weighing the same as the guy down the road, but I'm getting 20% less.
1: And you know, uh, Brian, I ran, I ran a, a a commercial feedlot. The one I built in 1978 with my shareholder friends in St. Francis, Kansas. I ran that, that feedlot for eight years. When I started, we had 20 buyers we could sell to. And, and and then I left in about 1986, and things were not fun. I mean, it, it, I felt like a transfer agent. I mean, you 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 get this, the, these wonderful ranch families out of the Sandhills in Nebraska to bring you cattle to feed, retain ownership. You know, cattle facts is talking about knowing your genetics and you know, knowing what your cattle can do. So you're you're part of that. You're you're having uh, steer futurities where where people are bringing in you know several head of their herd. To test them and, and see what their genetics are doing, and you're all wrapped up in this in this total BS that the national cattlemen's and cattle facts and the big meat packers are promoting, and all the while they're they're buying out their their competitors, they're predatory pricing their competitors, they're lying, they're cheating, they're stealing, they're violating the Packers and Stockyards Act, and and all the while, as a cattle feeder, a custom cattle feeder. I'm out there flying my airplane around, trying to get cattle in my feedlot, and in the end, I felt like a transfer agent. I'm transferring the equity of their ranch to the meatpacking industry as a cattle feeder. And of course, my my interest was to keep my pens full. You know, I've got to I've got to get the throughput. I've got to get the the the, the twenty five cents a head a day yardage on those animals to where I can make my part work. And so, you know, I've got to I, I can't even see uh the, the reality for the financial demands and, and then as time passes it gets harder and harder and harder to, to the point where jim keller down at uh, oakley feedlot the keller brother feed yard uh, uh, they they just he just gives up and he says ibp you can have my cattle and you tell me at at the, at the end of the week what you're going to pay me but i don't have time to negotiate price with with a bunch of meat packers that have more power than I do. And, I, and, I, and it does me no good. He says, just, you can have them. And IBP might've said, hey, yeah, that, that's great. Uh, Mr. Keller, uh, we'll give you 50 cents over the high of the week. And that was it. And then more and more feedlots got more and more tired and they just started handing off their cattle to these packers and, and uh, letting Calicrate up in St. Francis and and Dan Jones up in, up in uh, Scott City let us those little guys with no power we're going to set the cash market for everybody and so the so the industry dies and, and and when i when i say we got to have transparency we've got to get rid of the confidentiality rule i want people to just see what the big feedlots are being paid to sell this industry out to to eliminate competition and turn everybody into a chicken farmer except worse you can't pay the mortgage on a ranch with two jobs in town like you can a chicken house when you're under contract with Tyson. Yeah. Yep.
0: So more small plants. More small plants are the answer. I mean, I I did have written down here to ask you about fifty fourteen and Fisher Grassley and the contract library and and the compromise bill, but uh, I think you kind of. That ship has sailed, so to speak.
1: <laughs> yeah, it has. But Brian, more small plants are not the answer it, without a market. And right now, nobody's talking about the market. Look at look at uh, the Herzog plant in Missouri. Good guys, uh, Jim and and Todd Herzog. Okay. What a what a terrific uh, opportunity. I mean, they saw COVID hit and they broke ground and they built a the plant. And then Hy-Vee, they got into Hy-Vee. Well, Hy-Vee had they had a bunch of empty shelves, and and they were, and probably those local those local store managers saw a real opportunity in finding a local supplier that wasn't going to, you know, let them run out. And so they they got into some Hy-Vees in Kansas City. Well, then things lightened up a little bit, and and uh, the big packers were starting to flow a little more product into the big stores, and and they probably discovered that uh, there was this little packer by the name of Herzog meats uh out of missouri that was in those darn iv stores well we can't have that you you can't have those guys buying outside of the system i mean here i am cargill i i've got all i own the meat counter tyson owns the meat counter at at the walmart poultry pork uh chicken you know the fake meat the whole thing we own it all you can't be having a Herzog come in and put up his little display i mean my goodness his product looks so much better than ours And and that's so embarrassing, you know. And and so pretty soon, you know, Herzog gets the phone call, Ivy kicks them out. So now what are they going to do? Well, they can custom kill, but my gosh, how are you going to pay? You know, your labor. How are you going to cover your overhead with with your with your custom kill? You know, and and you just there's not there's just not enough volume there at. It, it good enough margins to be able to make it work. and that's why the small plants went out of business to begin with. That's why there aren't any is because they couldn't make a living, you know, doing custom killing. And of course, if they brought in USDA, they had a whole nother level of expense that went on to the operation that that I would I would estimate is adds about a 30 percent increase in your costs uh, because everything slows down. Uh, you've got lots of paperwork to do. You've got to hire extra staff to do that paperwork, and and for a, a small plant operator that actually had a knife in his hand and was on the kill crew and was on the cut crew to to process those carcasses into retail cuts, that represented a whole lot more expense for him and a whole lot more headache. And you know the last thing a guy with a knife in his hand, in his hand wants to do is get on his laptop and fill out forms for USDA that don't make food safer. And so, the, so you know, USDA is, in right now, in my opinion, is not serious about building more small plants or promoting small plants. But the the grants they're throwing out there are these massive, huge grants that can that can really only be for uh, plants that are that are going to be owned at some point by the big meat packers. Uh, it, it it might be a North Platte feeder, a North Platte plant, or it might be a you know, a junction city plant, or whatever it may be out there. But without a market without being able to sell to the consumer, none of those plants are going to succeed. And the big packers then just just get a more modern version of what they already have.
0: Okay, let's, let's talk about like meat plant nuts and bolts for a little bit. So how many times have you upgraded or expanded your plants?
1: well i've got i started out with a mobile slaughter unit uh, and i we built a prototype uh, in conjunction with this with the uh, socially responsible egg project (SRAP). wrap uh, they they funded the the first mobile slaughter unit that i had in our cattle operation and you know we didn't like it uh it, it wasn't designed right which is always true with prototyping right you always find better ways and 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 make improvements and that's that's and that's and that's part of the fun too. And, and so in, in this, this story of that mobile slaughter it gets more interesting when you can when you learn that they were IBP's trailers. Uh, it, was, it was their tram trailers that they put the little packer out of business with. Uh, so what happened when IBP introduced box beef, uh, that that meant they didn't want to sell carcasses anymore. And so they convinced the big retailers to buy their carcasses and and the small plants all across the country that sold carcasses like i used to see in the meat plant when i was in high school uh, they didn't have market anymore they, they and, and so ibp came to them and, and said well hey look we've got a bot we've got excess boxing capacity we'll buy your carcasses and so ibp is going to buy the carcasses of the small plants that they compete for fat cattle with really and Packers and stockyards didn't see a problem with that. And, and, and nobody saw seemed to see a problem with that. Well, they used these tram trailers to haul these whole half carcasses, not quarters, half carcasses. So they needed a special tram door. Uh, they had to build a new dock to back the trailer up to, and they had to use, and then IBP would, would haul these carcasses. And so the small packer wasn't selling quarters anymore. He was simply really killing cattle for IBP. And getting squeezed on 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 in competing with them you know, for the live cattle, and I've got the set of notes from the ibp meeting where where they plan this whole strategy, and and they said we've got to move fast because it because it, you've got to we got to break them in a hurry and we got to shut them down, and that's what they did with these tram trailers So here we've got these these you know fifty five foot long. Tram trailers that are extra tall and extra low to the ground, and specifically made to haul half carcasses in, and that's where you used to hear about that swinging beef being so dangerous to pull down the road with a semi, and because they literally did swing in those trailers, and they were real top heavy. So what we did is we bought six of those trailers and converted them into mobile slaughter units. And so the the first and second trailer that we that we did were in Saint Francis, Kansas. The first trailer went back to the East Coast to kill hogs. And and so I got the second trailer, which was really cool. We did everything on that trailer that we needed to do to fix it uh, and and make it better. We could kill an animal every 20 minutes. The cooler on it would hold about 15 head. And so you could you could fill the cooler every day. And then one of the more innovative getting back to Don Shufflebine innovation. Right. We added a six foot quartering section on the back of that trailer so that we uh, that we could quarter outside of the cooler. Well, that gave us more room to hold two or three more head inside the cooler and then back a truck up a, a semi truck that hauled quarters not halves quarters and then we could quarter those carcasses and, and hang them on a, in, a, in a rail trailer or put them in tubs and, and haul them in a straight truck or whatever you wanted to do that is refrigerated and so we we're very innovative i mean we think of cool stuff all the time and and so that mobile slaughter unit was was just really really we we nailed it with that one and then we, we you know a few more got built out and one of them is wild idea buffalo up in rapid city nebraska or rapid city south dakota they kill buffalo and they go right out onto the ranch uh, like the picture behind you uh if those were buffalo they'd be right out there and they'd shoot them where they stand you know bleed them put them in the cooler and then haul them back into town uh, at the end of the day or at the end of the whatever days it took to fill the trip the cooler but but the mobile slaughter unit uh is is definitely not the answer uh you can't afford to move them around you, you've gotta you've gotta you know dock them put them in one spot with a really good corral system so you're not having a rodeo uh you, you want you want a good kill box you, you want to be able to have a place to get rid of your slaughter waste which makes the feedlot make a lot of sense because you can you can you know bury it in the manure pile and, and compost it uh, you've got to get a way of you got to have a way of getting water to it and water away from it and if you're in a feedlot like I am uh, you know they consider the the water coming out of the slaughter unit as agricultural waste and and so we're able to utilize the existing runoff system in our feedlot and catch catchments that we have there to catch that water and and so uh, we sold that mobile slaughter unit it had been it had been housed inside a new building that my son put up tegan uh built and it was really doing it It was serving its purpose and and it was doing everything we wanted it to do but covid hit and we decided we really need to be able to kick up you know our slaughter and and we just decided to you know we built the building specifically designed it so that we could put in a slaughter floor at some point well, now we've had five, six, seven years of experience slaughtering animals through a mobile slaughter unit. Uh, we pretty much knew what a, what a new kind of a design would look like on, on a kill floor. We, when we, and the building was designed with, with overhead doors and so forth to accommodate that. And, and we sold the mobile slaughter unit to, the, to uh, uh, Northern Montana co- uh, unit College under the, uh, under the Montana State University system. Yeah, you're
0: you're delivering that last time we talked.
1: Yeah, and it's it's going to be part of that meat cutting butchering uh, curriculum up there. It's going to be really cool what they do with that. But that is a really great unit. It will it'll do 15 cattle a day every day, and 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 you know four guys basically can 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 run that operation very very efficiently, and and so we sold the unit. We built a, a purpose uh, built uh, kill floor there in st francis that is unlike any kill floor that that's out there it's it you talk about efficient and just seriously low cost Uh, we we use a skinning cradle uh and and we you know lift the animal to the uh up up with a hoist uh and and that hoist is on a on a trolley uh on an i-beam system where it's it's moved along where it's gutted it's split and then it's put on the rail uh, where we where we do the final inspection and we do an acid spray for final pathogen control before those carcasses go into a 70 head cooler. 30 on the kill side, uh, on the drip side, uh, and, and 40 head on the finish cooler side. And, and we're now pouring concrete here very soon for a new freezer and building a cut room inside that building. So the the the, and we'll be able to move carcasses directly out of the out of the coolers into the cut room so that we can help Colorado Springs keep up with carcass processing. And so the animals we cut or kill for custom business in St. Francis can just stay there. And our kill crew will probably only work a couple, three days a week and then cut on the other days. Uh, But now we've got the capacity to do 30 cattle a day. And, And that is such an ideal, such an ideal number. Yeah, because you can you can service a plant like that with a 3,500 head feedlot, uh, you could you can keep all the slaughter waste on site. Uh, you can make it into beautiful fertilizer that builds soil health. Uh, you can uh, get rid of the water in good shape. You can use 30 to 50 gallons of, head, of of water per head per day, as opposed to the big meat packers that are using over 700 gallons of water a day. Uh, you can you can really level things out to where your kill crew becomes very skilled and gets gets back to what a a, a journeyman butcher was expected to do in nineteen eighty which was hang ten head of cattle in a cooler a day per man the and, and you know we we're looking at four or five right now with our crew not being all, all that highly skilled uh but but that can improve with better you know with better you know training and and all that so we're really looking forward to the support of of these curriculums, you know, getting kids trained up to where they can come in and run plants like this. And and, and so, you know, IBP, you know, we're looking at four or five head a day per man. The, 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 The journeyman butcher in 1980 was expected to hang 10 head a day by himself. And GNC Packing Company, in fact, where we first started killing cattle 22 years ago, did in fact kill 40 head a day with four butchers. And they did that consistently every week uh Tyson IBP are getting about 1.57 animals per man per day. So they're getting they're getting less than you know 20% of what a a skilled butcher got in 1980.
0: And like I and guess planning efficiencies. <laughs> yeah, I guess in 1980 they did have they did have power saws and band saws and oh I had all that
1: yeah
0: yeah I guess but they it really had so a-
1: Brian they were producing a carcass not box b and so they jump right in with that argument and i say you know what we're we're killing at least we're twice as efficient as you are with our labor uh you know when i talk about killing four to five animals per man per day and they're getting 1.57 at garden city and dakota city combined and they say yeah but we put it in a box and my my answer to that is why 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 aren't you shipping carcasses to, to butchers and grocery stores that know what they're doing and can put it in a fresh counter? Why Why instead of zombies that, that just take it out of a box and put it in a counter, why don't we bring back the, the meat cutting skill and and, and put it in, in, in retail stores again? Well, the reason is when IBP in about 1969 decided that the mafia out of New York City needed to you know, pay their bill for the meat they'd been buying, uh, loaded up and went to New York and. And Courier Holman and, and his, uh, you know, fellow fellow executive, met with Mo Stein, uh, who was head of the sort of the meat meat uh, division of the New York Mafia, and basically they bribed the store executives, the grocery store executives, to take box beef, and they had to bribe the union as well. The union had to had to agree that they were going to replace carcass beef with box beef. And that was going to result in about a forty percent cut in wages. Well, that interested the 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 grocery store folks a bunch. Uh, They they thought that was a great idea. Well, the union probably didn't like it a whole lot, but you know they were getting their pocket padded. And the bottom line is 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 uh, Courier Holman left New York with all the money that was owed him. In fact, he'd been threatened by the bank that they were going to have to shut IBB down if he couldn't collect that receivable from New York. And so basically, he, he struck a deal fifty cents a hundredweight uh, on all box beef that went into that region. at the time it was about twenty five percent of all the meat consumed beef consumed in the United States uh, in in that in that uh, area. And so he came home and very proudly, you know announced that you know that they had the business and that they'd be shipping a whole lot of stuff into the new York area and 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 then the law enforcement got involved and and of course, you know, it's going. It's still going on today. But the law enforcement uh, got involved, and and there were charges filed uh, because of the bribery, and and the dealing with the mafia. And and basically, the whole the whole deal was, is the judge in the case did convict Courier Holman of a felony count uh, for for that uh, bribing and, and working with the mafia, but said, you know what, he really didn't have a choice you know the the competitors the other competitors were you know in order to compete uh, in order to get you know his meat into new york he really he really had no choice but to deal with the mafia and so you know courier you're not going to get a jail sentence and you're only going to have to pay seven thousand dollars in fines that's what the judge did that sounds a whole lot like the judge in the in the uh, ibp tyson case that said hey rule of reason you know they got to do what they got to do you know we're not gonna we're not gonna enforce the law. Uh, we're gonna let them get away with it, and that's what they did. And that is that is precisely how IVP got to where they are in the market today, and and eventually then became a part of Tyson. So, you know this is all based upon a lot a whole lot a whole lot of illegal acts that that law enforcement has completely and totally failed uh, to to enforce the laws, and there ought to be people in jail. And and one I like I really liked what the uh, uh, under uh, or the assistant attorneys general said uh, at, at one of the hearings the other day is he, he said, I'm not I'm not going to be a member of the chicken shit club. And the book uh, uh, was written called the chicken shit club. And basically, it's it's uh, the Justice Department and law enforcement being willing to settle cases instead of prosecute them and actually get a felony count and maybe get some people put in jail. They're too willing to settle the cases, like they did with JVS and uh, in the 52 and a half million dollars. So they really haven't changed their their mode of of enforcement. It's it's pretty much still the same and they still are the chicken chick club. But the, the reason it's called the chicken chick club is is uh, comey, James Comey was was presenting to a group of of states attorneys general, and he, and he would raise he would ask them questions and they'd raise their hand and and he says, How many of you have never lost a case against a big a big corporation? And there'd be a bunch of hands go up. Oh, man, that's really awesome. You know, and, or how many of you lost maybe just a few cases? And, and and so, you know, there'd be some hands go up. They lost a few cases. And he says, well, I just want you to know that you're all members. All of you guys who raised your hand are members of the Chicken Shit Club because you didn't actually try those cases. You settled those cases. That didn't fix a damn thing. You've got to prosecute them you've got to break that market power that abusive market power and and you know and of course i don't know how much comey did uh in in that regard either but but the whole attitude since reagan especially has been was president is is this dereg mentality just just we don't need regulations but the runs we do get are anti-small business anti-small meatpacker anti-rancher anti you know cattle beater. well
0: of course because You know the people that write those laws—they got to protect the people that are donating to their campaigns, and that's right. Screw the rest of us. That's right. So last week I uh, was—I went down to Fort Worth, the Grass Fed Exchange, met a lot of really awesome fans. I like it was really cool. Everybody came up and said hi. But the—the thing I want to talk to you about, Mike, is I on the second day I sat through a couple breakout sessions about processing and processing at scale and and getting value back out of carcasses and one of the speakers um that i listened to he has a meat plant that he's expanded from a fairly small operation say 10 people now he's got 150 and um you know they And I think they just do beef, but they also have, you know, cooked products and sausage products and, you know, hot dogs and things like that. They do cuts, they do boxes. um, And I think they even, they, they'll even ship primals out of there. Uh, Anyway, um, this gentleman was talking about capacity and scheduling. And that, that is one of his biggest problems is making sure that he's got enough coming in the, coming in the door to keep his cutters busy because if he can't keep his cutters busy, then that, that snafus everything else down the line. Okay. And I say that because, you know, we talk on this podcast a lot about grass finishing and being regenerative. And uh, the first one we did, you said that, you know, you've only been able to finish like one out of three years in St. Francis. And to be honest, it doesn't look good for this year again. It's like <laughs> I, one out of 10. I, 12. I, I hate to say it. It doesn't look good to do a whole lot of grass finishing <laughs> anywhere in Kansas this year. Um, but but that is the problem, right? That That's part of the problem with trying to be a grass-fed producer is knowing when that animal is going to be ready. And having enough consistently that are going to be ready you know, space through the year that you can keep your processor happy so and at at I know you get around that by having a feedlot where you can you can control when those are finishing to, to some degree and you, you know when they're going to be finished and you also don't have to call around and look for a slot so what what do you have to say about about the seasonality of of grass finishing and plant capacity.
1: Well Ryan, I, I love the idea of, of grass finished product. I mean, you get to bypass the feedlot, which is really good. I, I, you know, if you can actually finish an animal on grass, that that's beautiful. Uh, but when you look at it from the perspective of what the risks are, like it doesn't rain uh, or you know the or or they just didn't finish this year for some reason, or we or we have grasses that that aren't conducive to finishing the animal. Uh, they grow them okay, but they don't finish them very well. That you've got you've got some things that are that are in the way of of making that program successful, uh, and and so as a as a cattle feeder, you know, in in a small plant operator. I can schedule my cattle as long as I can feed them, I know they're going to be ready and and from a perspective of a a retail store owner as well. I've got to know that I've got a consistent flow of of product through through my to my retail customers and and I got wholesale customers as well. And and so I can't depend on hoping it rains because, like I said, in the last two out of the last 12 years, you you could have probably finished cattle on grass, but they wouldn't have been big enough for me. To, to suit my my program, then I probably would have liked to have put another couple hundred pounds on them, even though they were in great shape coming off of grass. But but and that really impacts the bottom line of profitability too, is if you can take those animals to their genetic potential of their, their genetically, uh, you know, the right finish weight for that, for the genetics of that animal, I think it's important. Otherwise we're wasting the animal's ability to to, to, to produce food. But the way I, the really the way that that I saw the grass fed thing cranking up to begin with is Dale Lasseter, Dale Lasseter at Matheson, Colorado, Lasseter grassland beef. And, and you know, it was one fall, Dale preg checked his heifers. And he had some open heifers and, you know, decided, well, let's let's sell some meat. You know, those heifers are beautiful. They're fat. They weren't. They aren't pregnant. They put good weight on this summer. We had a great, you know, good good season, and and so you kill those heifers and and you hang those up in the cooler, uh, next to something that's coming out of the feedlot, and honestly, you can't tell the difference, because of that plane of nutrition was sufficiently high that those those open heifers really did a good job, and and they're at their they're at their target weight, so they're weighing like eleven fifty, maybe twelve hundred pounds, and and it's just. Totally the ideal grass-fed product. So it's got a lot of quality. It's got marbling in the meat. And, and, and so you go out there and you present that to your retail customer and they like it and they want more of it. Well, what if you got more demand than you have open heifers? Well, now we're going to keep the steers over. Well, then we hit a drought, you know, or or whatever, and, and we're ended up, you know, we're killing feeder cattle at the end of the season instead of good high quality fat grass-fed beef. And and so with a feedlot, at least you can you can manage that and minimize that risk. Like right now, I, I've got three hundred cows that that we run on our place. I would have had to sold them had I not had a feedlot. I mean, I sure you, we we did the corn stocks. We went out and grazed at crop aftermath. We worked hard putting up electric fence all over the place to get the keep those cows in some feed. But in the end, we had to bring them into the feedlot and, and feed them a cow ration, some cheap you know, just some cheap uh, hay and, and, and whatever else we could put together to try to keep those costs down. But at least we kept the cow herd. And these are special cows. These are Angus cows bred to Wagyu bulls that are producing, you know, some of the most beautiful meat you'll ever see in the world uh, out of our operation. And so I see the feedlot is really making an operation even more regenerative. Uh, you have a home, you, you have that, what we would call in the grazing business, that sacrifice pasture. Yeah. you know where you, where you put the animals and they just they, you know they totally destroy it because there's too many in there for too long well that's what that's what a feedlot is for me is i can bring those animals in and it's, it's sort of your sacrifice uh, area and and now i can really let my grass come back and not put those out those animals out on that grass too soon you know i, I i'm just able to manage so much better and and from the feedlot perspective you know i've got a really great water system there that i can now pipe all my pastures to where you know I can run six hundred head of cattle in one group, move them around, and not not overtax my water system. And so now I've got the pounds per acre that I need to really get the impact I want. But the feedlot is always there as that safety valve. Uh, and And now, with the feedlot, I can slaughter those animals on site. So now I've got a comfortable place for those animals to be. None of them have ever been on a truck in their entire life. They've never left the place and and I can I can slaughter them on site low stress making meat quality even better and animal welfare I mean 100% better than than what the others that go to a Tyson plant might experience and and so now I now I can get in the meat business instead of the cattle business and avoid the you know the meat packer monopoly and so that that's really what it's done for me and so so when I see and I and I see the absolute most efficient best cattle operation the cattle feeding operation being the farmer feeder that's a brett kenzie that's an eric nelson in, in iowa these guys have the right size feed lots to support the feed the crops that they grow and so we run our cows on grass all those marginal acres that that that, that 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 can do nothing but feed a cow and we we run those cows on the grass we bring them into these farmer feeders lots where all of that Corn and hay and everything that was produced on that farm is fed to the, to the livestock. So now they've maximized the value of their of their crop and that's what Shufflebine's doing too. remember his conversation. And, and so you're you're putting your farm through the livestock and, and, and then the big, the really big advantage is that manure then goes back on the land that the crops came off of. We even put it on our pastures. Uh, so, you know, and by the time, by the time those, that manure gets out back on those pastures, it's already, it's got biochar added to it. It it has got all the slaughter waste that's been added to it. It's a powerful compost product, but that's made possible with the feedlot. And so I manage a lot, the, a lot of the risk in the industry or my business is managed with the feedlot. And, and so, so now I've got a carcass going, going to a meat shop. But, you know, you, it, but go back to Shufflebine. I mean, he, I, I just described his operation. You know, he's, he's producing cattle, he's feeding the byproducts and he's selling that product to a meat packer. But if you're doing all of that and you've been all really innovative and you, you're efficient and all that stuff and you got a lot of family labor in the deal, aren't you the lowest cost producer? Way lower than the big feedlot that's hiring all their help and feeding eight dollar corn. You're way more efficient. That's more by far the most ideal operation. But if you're selling into a monopolized market, and now instead of getting paid for the corn that you grew that went through the cattle, you're giving it away with the with losses on the cattle. Your kids that work on the operation, they're not getting paid. The family's not getting paid. You're going to the bank and you need to borrow money to pay the interest you know this is the this is the business we've been in the last 30 some years and my in my vision of the future uh, where we can connect producers more closely to consumers fixes that problem we have to fix that problem how many of these kids want to come back none of them none of them you can't make a living
0: and none of them will until we fix it that's right so kind of about the last thing on my list is and this really probably shouldn't even be on my list because I know you've talked about it before, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to address working with the humane society of the United States, because I, this was a couple of weeks ago. There was, I can't remember what it was. There was somebody that was really, really hot on Facebook about, well, what does Mike think about this? What does Mike think about this? Well, what does he say about working with the Humane Society of the United States? And honestly, I just linked him the last podcast episode that we did because I'm not your spokesman, right?
1: Right. Sure.
0: Yeah. Good. But I'll at least, I'll at least give you another a platform again to address the haters that that are upset that you might have agreed with some things that the HSUS has said.
1: Yeah, and and you know, one of the real effective tools of of the monopoly, the food monopoly, is to divide people, uh, get them to fighting over stuff that doesn't matter. And, and that way we can continue to pick their pockets and, and exploit them. And, and so that that's just a just a basic tool that they use very, very effectively. But I'll never forget that that year I went to RCAP. And my, I can't remember how long ago it was. It was it was probably 10 or more years ago by now. And and our calf is this little group of cow-calf producers. You know, some, some farmer feeders involved and guys like myself that feed cattle are involved, but they're they, they, they're really focused on market concentration issues. The, the big deal for our calf is how do we get a fair price for what we produce? How do we restore competition? And, in, in, in it, and it really comes down to a political problem. You know, we've talked about how Congress is owned by big corporations, and the only thing that beats that relationship is a vote that that's the only thing that beats a lobbyist is the voters kicking the guy out. And or at least having that serious threat of kicking the guy out and, and so I always encouraged the RCAF leadership to look to the consumer to partner with try to get the consumer on your side let them know that their food best comes from an independent family farm and ranch and a farmer feeder uh, operation as opposed to the big the big you know corporate uh, model and 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 they did that i mean they they really they got with the consumers union and i think you know we're starting to really do some good uh, uh partnerships with with some of the consumer groups i think food and water watch were, uh Patty Lavera was good friends at the time and presented on our calf's, uh, conventions and on some of their panels. And 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 I said, But look, guys, there is an organization out there that likes animals. How many in this room, how many ranchers in this room don't like animals? Uh, you know, you've got you've got some things potentially in common with the humane society of the United States who who, uh, what's his name? The, uh, the, the, the Mr. Evil guy from 60 minutes, that the big backer of farm bureau, uh, Berman, Rick Berman, okay. you know, he he's got humane watch the whole website that makes you, the humane society bad, but you know, that's another wedge kind of, uh, sort of a project to, to divide people. But I said, think about this, the best steward, the best husbandman is a rancher a family farmer a farmer raising pigs uh, in you know out out in the pasture in a in a hut i mean the pigs are happy the farmers happy the kids are in 4-h everybody's making a little money it's it's working it's working good and that's the right way to raise a hog and 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 i said and how many of you can agree that it's a good idea to put a sow in a two by seven crate and they don't and they never get to turn around how many of you think that's a great way to raise it to raise pigs and how many of you think it's a great way to raise chickens to put them in a battery cage with other hens and they can't even spread their wings how many of you think that's a good idea well and animal course,
0: science research said that that was the safest most humane way to do it Mike yeah 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 exactly
1: but a rancher knows better I mean they're not going to do that to their cattle you know it, it, it's better husbandry. They're the, they're the stewards of the land well it so happens that the Humane Society had decided at that time that they might be better off supporting family farmers and ranchers as opposed to just you know, fighting agriculture and, and, and many of the practices that we, we consider inhumane, like the, like the sow in a, in a gestation crate and in the, in the, in the chicken in a, in a battery cage and 150,000 head of cattle in one spot And when it, when it's, when the snowstorm comes by the third day, they still aren't fed or they're in mud up to their butt and they're losing, you know, a a whole lot of cattle as opposed to Eric Nelson and Brett Kenzie's yards. They were fed the next day after the blizzard. Right. And all the kids were out there scooping bunks. And I mean, you talk about humane care and and quality care to animals, that's where you're going to get it. And so basically the humane society came to myself and Joe Maxwell and a and some of us producers, and they said, don't we have something in common here? There's 11 million of us and we vote. Don't we have something in common here? Could we work together to, to support family farm agriculture and really do a better more effective job of fighting the factory farm side that's so exploitive of, of ranchers and producers and workers and all of that? And, and we said, yeah, why don't we just give it a shot? And so I suggested that year at our CAF that that the Humane Society and their 11 million members might be a pretty good collaboration and of course it didn't go anywhere but 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 it got said and, and then we just went right on and we we developed some some state uh, groups uh, some advisory groups uh, that would advise the Humane Society on policy and so I did a chart one time and I and it basically it was it was the organization like like RCAF, NCba uh, the uh, in or uh, the Humane Society, and and just where they stood on certain policy, and and it was interesting because on country of origin labeling, mandatory price reporting, you know, market concentration, really these seriously important uh, policies, Humane Society was one hundred percent in alignment with our calf, and exactly. NCBA was on the other side with the meat packers, and 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 so. You know, we were really making the case that that you know this would be a pretty good group, you know, to 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 perhaps align with and, and get them. You know, when they hit the hill on in DC, uh, DC feels it. I mean, when their lobbyists and their you know animal lovers hit the hill, I guarantee you, there's passion there. There there's there's a lot of volume to their voice, and and the hill listens. And so we really did do some good there for a little bit. And and then we got crossways. What happened was the Humane Society had partnered with Whole Foods on on, on GAP certification, the global animal partnership thing. And it was deceptive, it was misleading. And we felt as advisors to the Humane Society through this advisory group, that they shouldn't be a part of that, what we thought was food fraud. And we were never able to break the connection between the Humane Society and Whole Foods Global Animal Partnership, which which was a, a certification program that Whole Foods imposed upon their suppliers that wasn't being held up to the to the stated standards. It was more of a marketing thing for Whole Foods to be able to sell to their consumers. And, and honestly, they were just producing, you know, regular feedlot, factory farm product and and putting you know what what I thought was a fake label on it and many of us other many of the other folks in the group thought was a fake label as well. And so we ended up parting ways. Uh you know I'm no longer on an advisory panel with with HSUS. I don't see them as a threat to the kind of agriculture that I want, but I see them not being willing to to address what I thought was a fatal, fatal flaw in their relationship on the GAP certification thing. And, and, and it was just, to me, it was a question of, you know, you know they, had to, they had to decide. Uh, if, if they thought their relationship with Whole Foods was was more important than their relationship with their family farm and ranch advisory group, uh, we ended up just parting ways. But still, uh, Brian, I think we did a lot of good during those years of, of really earning some trust of, of a lot of the membership of HSUS. I mean, like Kevin, Fulton would go and present to their annual meeting, and I mean, he—he's he, a, you know, Kevin. I mean, he, he's an awesome operator out of out of Nebraska, a regenerative for sure, like multi-species livestock producer. And he literally would get a standing applause at a at an HSUS board meeting. There'd be six, seven hundred people in the room, and I I was there and I witnessed it. I mean, they loved Kevin Fulton. Sure, there's a lot of vegetarians in the room. Uh, but you got to ask yourself, why are they a vegetarian? And, and for the HSUS member or supporter, it's going to be the way animals are treated.
0: And and I think that that's a very important point. You said it, where they're not against the kind of agriculture that we want to do, right? That's right. But they don't they don't like seeing those fifty and seventy thousand head feedlots with you know a twenty acre shit pond. They don't like seeing the quarter million head chicken barn or the 10,000 head hog barn, which I think just about everybody that listens to this podcast is going to agree. That shit's gross.
1: <laughs> That's right. Especially pig, especially hogs. you know, they're, they're really bad. And I mean, you, when you stack them up and and confine them the way that Iowa has done, it makes the place unlivable. And, and, and no family farmer wants to, you know, not be able to cook a steak out on his, on his back deck in the evenings, you know they, you know, except, you know, he can't stand the hog smell of all the barns that are that are on his property line. So, it, you know, we we've got to fix this, and and I think we have to be willing to work with others, and don't don't let Rick Berman, you know, drive the wedge and and try to divide us to make us weaker. The fact is, the way we win is we win by coming together, and we win with a boat, and the and to me we've got it we've got it i loved what uh with uh one of the old uh talking heads in in washington said the other day he said you know we just really need the old people to leave and and he's talking about the nancy pelosi's the joe biden the 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 the, the guy in the senate uh oh,
0: mitch, McConnell. mitch
1: mcconnell these guys really honestly and truly need to retire they're part of the problem they're part of the Wall Street Congress partnership instead of the people Congress partnership. And, and honestly, they do need to go. I mean, they, get some young people in there that, that, that add more energy and have a better perspective of where the future ought to lie for, for, for Americans and, and you know, get rid of all this corruption uh, that just won't ever end. We just keep covering more and more of it up every day. Uh, Maybe we, term,
0: lim- term limits too
1: yeah you know i i know there's some benefit in some you know some wisdom among some leadership but but man these guys are hanging around way too long i mean i mean poor old mitch mcconnell really needs to go spend some time with his grandkids
0: (laughs) they'll be in college before
1: (laughs) he will they'll have they'll be great grandkids
0: yeah so, so anyway,
1: I you know I just one more point on that HSUS thing. When I was in the lawsuit against IBP, and we were in Alabama, you know, working on the case, and I I met I met an attorney, Buck Watson was his name, and Buck Watson it was a really successful plaintiffs lawyer from Alabama, and was very political. And they were down there talking about blue dogs and you know blue dog Democrats and different all this stuff and and you know a blue dog democrat was i'd rather vote for a blue dog than a democrat or 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 whatever I, I forget all that stuff but they had all these categories that they would put you in you know you're either a conservative democrat or a liberal democrat or you're you know a republican <laughs> this or that and 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 so buck watson said to me one day he said you know mike we were talking about politics he says you know mike politics is about addition not subtraction and that was my message to rcaf who can you collaborate with who can you coordinate your effort with to where you can get power again and let's try to do something before we have a complete meltdown of the current system which is coming and which has already happened and we haven't done anything about it yet let's let's really try to fix this mess right now as soon as we possibly can I want my grandkids to come back to that farming and, and cattle operation in St. Francis. My my kids didn't want to come back because they saw how awful the 80s were. It was, and how, you know- The I, 80s were bad though. I mean, the they 80s were really were bad. bad. And, and and you know, they don't want to, they didn't want to come back because of what grandma and granddad were telling them every, at every meal, you know, don't do what we did. Well, that just drove me to want to make it better. How do we carve out, like Brett Kinsey called it, he says, you you need a lifeboat. And for me, Ranch Foods Direct has been my lifeboat. It's cost money, but at least it's a lifeboat and it keeps me running, hopefully to get to a better place uh, on land at some point where a lot of us could be doing what I'm doing and a lot of us can be connecting back to those consumers more directly. And that's why I'm really excited about this project that I told you about at the very first of the podcast is if we can build these little local regional food villages and take care of the producer, the small business guy that's the miller of the grains from the region and think about a Miller being in a little village like that, he's got the baker, the distiller, the brewer, he's got the pie maker, he's got, how much demand has he got for flour in that place?
0: a bunch so we got a lot
1: and of course it's going to be stone ground it's not going to be like what cargill and adm produce it's going to be a healthy better flower it's not going to have gmos involved it's not going to have roundup involved it's it's just going to be i mean he's
0: going to go buy the heirloom grain from the guy down the road that only planted 40 acres as a as a test and it's going to be some weird ancient variety that nobody's grown for 150 years and it's going to be a funny color it'll be so damn delicious everybody will want it
1: and he's going to pay too much, I hope. Yes. And the consumer is still going to get a great deal on that loaf of bread. Have you ever picked up a, a, a loaf of real sourdough in, in one hand and a, and a loaf of wonder bread in the other?
0: Um, I don't know <laughs> if I've, I've directly done that comparison, but I have had sourdough
1: made from turkey red. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're talking about sourdough boulangerie in Colorado Springs. He's going to be in the village. He's going to be the baker, it, it, and I, have, I got to just tell you that I mean the, the loaf of sourdough that Sean makes with sourdough lingerie is so much heavier. I mean it's real food, yeah. And it, and, and you know what? You, you don't you don't have a gluten intolerance to it because it's sourdough. He fermented the grain. Those grains have a built-in protective device. It's you know it, it, they want to, They don't want you eating them. And and so with sourdough and the fermentation process, you you can eliminate, pretty much eliminate that problem. So anyway, that's what I want to surround myself with is good food and good and people who make good food and grow good commodities.
0: That's and I think that's something that we can all try to surround ourselves with is a community that is centered around providing food for each other.
1: Well, we we've got the why we need to do it in front of us. Uh and from baby formula to to everything else that goes in our diet. Uh, so I think it's time. I think it's time to come together and build some true local regional infrastructure that serves people instead of corporations.
0: Yes, for sure. I'm I'm really excited to to follow along and see how you build your food village, Mike.
1: We'll keep in we'll keep you informed.
0: Yep. Yeah. All right. Where do you want uh, anywhere
1: you want to send people today? Well, you can always go to mikecalicrate.com and and you know, you can check out the blog. I got a list served and and just almost everything else I do there is, is is somehow represented from you know from ranch foods direct to the calcrate cattle company, but we do for a regenerative program. You know, when you when you can make money, you can really be regenerative. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> so um, I missed you at Grass Fed Exchange. I think the next one coming up on the calendar. That's more than a couple weeks out. Um, let's see. RCAF convention, August in Deadwood, South Dakota. Yes. are you gonna go? Yeah, I'll be there. I think I might uh I might have to do that. Plane tickets out of Dodge City are half of what they are at a Wichita. If you can really
1: yeah. Would that be a problem, maybe with some concentration consolidation issues, monopoly power? Of i course. think it's i think it's federally
0: subsidized tickets out of dodge city actually yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but but the, but the, yeah that's yeah that's exactly what it is like cara springs is starting to get more flights which is is really good but but united has way too much power at DIA. At you know they can they control gates and it makes it hard more monopoly power
0: uh what else quivera's regenerate probably back in albuquerque this year you going to that one
1: yeah. I, 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 I usually try to get there. Okay. COVID slowed me down a little bit, uh, from going, but well,
0: two opportunities to, to see you this year. I'm going to, I'm going to really look into making that, making our up in Deadwood. I think that'll be a really good time. It's going to kind of depend on when my summer help has to go back to college. Cause I think uh. it it's either the, that week the, or the week before or the week after. So if he's going back to college, That means I've got to go back to work.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, good luck. I hope that works out because our cap's a good, a really good meeting.
0: We'll see if we can make it work. And uh, I think with that, we're going to go ahead and get out of here. Mike, it's always been a, always, always awesome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yep. All right, gang. Have a great week.